Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 19th, 2020, otherwise known as COVID Lockdown Week 14. I'm Charles Hain, uh, writer for No Film School, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello everyone. And this week we are going to be talking about the first major production to return, Jurassic World Dominion, shooting in the UK. Uh, we're, t- we're going to talk about some of the hiccups with the reopening plans. Specifically, no one included the writers in the conversation, which is like an old Hollywood joke. We've got two pieces of tech news about Canon and Apple. All that and deep cuts this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, so our first story this week. Obviously, there's been a lot of conversation in Hollywood and on this podcast about restarting production and when that when is that going to happen and there's been a lot of stories about these little productions that have been restarting and little productions are wonderful they're near and dear to my heart they're great but you know they they've all been special cases there's been the production in Iceland where everyone is living together already and the the studio is like the stages are owned by the director and like a lot of control Iceland didn't have a terrible outbreak. There was a lot of like variables that made that very doable. It's an interesting story. It's less of a, it doesn't tell us as much about how this is going to go for everybody. But now we're into the situation where we have the announcement of the first major studio tentpole production that's going back. And that is Jurassic World colon Dominion. (laughs) Uh, I don't remember if this is the second or third Jurassic World movie. Um, I think it's the third. Uh, directed by Colin Trevorrow again, who directed the first Jurassic World movie. And they were shooting at Pinewood Studios in England. Uh, Pinewood is obviously a very famous studio complex. They're famous for um, their large stages. I mean, a lot of productions shoot in England for their tremendous stage resources. Uh, England is also famous for its just incredibly well-trained crews. I know many like high-end productions. That is the thing that keeps bringing them back to England over and over. I mean, you know, all of the Star Wars films shoot there, obviously the Bond films and uh, Jurassic uh, Jurassic World colon Dominion was four weeks into a 20-week shoot when COVID broke out and they shut down and it is now the first sort of tentpole studio production that is going to be returning. The studio has put $5 million into COVID preparedness for this production. So a lot of the COVID protocols that we are seeing um, all over the internet. We've had articles about them at No Film School. We talked about them here at the podcast with like breaking teams up into zones. So it's like, oh, you're in this team, so you can go only go into this zone. You can't go into this zone. Everybody except for in front of camera talent is wearing a mask. Separate individual makeup kits for each individual to perform or isolation booths. They're actually working with, this is kind of interesting because it's England. They're working with a private health insurance company. I'm not a private health insurance company. I don't your know doctor. Which- your Whatever doctor yeah. <laughs> is going to provide some sort of like on-site medical support, which is interesting because obviously England has the National Health Service, the NHS. And um, but and they you, have Doctor you know, Who, of course. They do Sorry. have Doctor God, Who. That was bad. But, you know, you can't really – I mean, I guess you can. Like when you go to Louisiana, you hire the local police to shut down highways. You don't hire a private mm-hmm. security firm. So it is interesting which, that – Which they'll also have, by the way. They're going to have a special security team. Additionally, they, I think you mentioned like masks. I think everybody but the talent is wearing gloves too. I think that there are additional sinks installed and just a long list of practices. Universal said the the concern is safety, not cost. 
Um, I think you mentioned $5 million, right? Um, what I'm curious about is, so for a little background, the movie was, was filming when the coronavirus hit and everything was halted. So they were already in production. So they're going back into production and they're starting it July 6th. So there's time between now and then for things to change. And I only mention that because I'm fascinated if, you know, as we reopen in our lives in other ways, if it changes the direction of the bigger reopenings we're considering. So we've talked about like movie theaters and Tenet, Christopher Nolan's movie coming in July. They already pushed back once, which we covered and, and a lot of outlets were covering. Um, but I'm just curious to see what these timelines look like as we see how the first, what phase are we even in, Charles? What phase are you in in New York? I mean, New York City officially next Monday, June 22nd, goes to phase two. So, I mean, you know, in in terms of the places that are more conservative, New York and Los Angeles, um, that's yeah. not really a phrase I'm used to saying. But in the more conservative <laughs> areas of America, New York and Los Angeles, we're a little slower to reopening. I think Vegas is in the... Um, They're in phase everybody, two million. <laughs> yeah. Everybody get naked and breathe on each other phase of the reopening plan. So is Florida. Florida's phase is like yeah. a number of, of... It's a high numbered phase. Let's put it that way. Wrestle an alligator who has COVID phase of the reopening plan phase 77 i think getting everybody to shut down the first time was hard enough and i like i think that if there is another spike in england they probably should shut down my suspicion is they're not going to i am definitely in agreement i think that shutting down is so hard it's such a crazy thing to have done i don't think we're gonna get shutdowns i think we're gonna get something else that's like a half measure that or a more or a three quarters measure. I'm just, I'm fascinated. Like I keep saying that word. I don't know. You know, I really don't know. I think July 6th, all these precautions make sense. It's just like hearing that gyms are opening up or other things are, and you see and you hear all these precautions. Have you seen the image of the people in the plastic bubbles and gyms that are working out? Like it looks like something, it looks like 12 monkeys. Um, well, I, well like, but also speaking <laughs> of gyms, I mean, this is a big question is that like Chris Pratt obviously gets very fit for these roles. Was he able to stay in that shape during quarantine where a lot of people went hard to the Oreos? I'm not speaking yeah. for myself. I'm speaking <laughs> of others. But you and you went hard to the honey crisp apples. Hopefully. Yeah. But, but, but there's the, there. Yeah. It's a, I was thinking since this movie was already shooting, that was one of the things I was going to mention. Is, do you think we'll be able to find the pre and post lockdown uh moments within scenes are like oh this was clearly shot before it'll be a fun thing to try and figure out or learn um yeah i mean how has he been staying in shape does he have to do it all at home and what's his yeah good question well it's also like you know you ramp up to those things right so at some point or another you're chris pratt it's april 10th and you're like you know what there's no way they're going back in may order that fucking pizza but then <laughs> right like, because Chris Pratt's a human being. He obviously loves pizza. We also have Parks and Rec. And then there has to be a moment There's where proof. There's yeah, proof that he loves pizza. <laughs> where you're like, okay, now I'm ramping up. We're going into production again. And frankly, I got to be honest, if I were Chris Pratt, this is only three weeks notice to get back into Star-Lord shape. That's not a lot of time. I mean, I don't know how much he let himself go. I don't follow him on the Insta. I'm not sure. Maybe he was like, I'm going to stay diesel the whole time. But also, there's been a lot of 
discussion about the fact that like go easy on yourself if you're eating a lot of junk during this yeah. period because it's a stressful time and if junk is where you go then, how old like, is he because sometimes some bodies snap back faster than others but yeah you're right i mean it's a it's a I, I think we could all say, oh, he could continue to work out at home. So a lot of pro athletes, and he, it's a good comp for him. It's like a pro athlete who's like, okay, we're on hiatus, but I have to swing a bat at a ball or I have to you know, stay doing sprints or whatever it is you do to keep your conditioning up. So the question is, what's he doing at home if he's doing anything? But then the other question is, how much of it can you really replicate? Because some of the intensity that they have to train with to be ready for, for camera to look the way they look is is pretty high, you know. It's and more it's a maybe, team of people supporting yeah, you through it. Nutritionist, you know, yeah. there's things like who's preparing your food, and they. It, it's very hard for a regular for a human being to replicate the workflow that they have to get into shape for these movies. It's a good point. So yeah, I, I, if I were Chris Pratt, I would be a little annoyed at three weeks' notice. I mean, everybody's happy to have work. But three weeks' notice to get back to Ripped. Hopefully, he was staying Ripped. The other thing I thought was really interesting in this. Well, he's in, he's got an open invitation to join us on the podcast. I'm sure he's listening. He can come tell us whether or not he felt it was fair warning and what he did. But he's only welcome to talk about working out. That's it. Yeah, that's he can it. be a guest <laughs> in a special workout episode. But that's the only conversation we're going to have with Chris Pratt. Um, but the other interesting thing about this reopening is that at least part of it the implication was that at least part of the reason why is because Pinewood was continuing continuing to charge the studio to hold to the stages. And so yeah. they had this well and look from and here's one of those cases where every individual actor makes sense. Actor in terms of like p- person making mm-hmm. decision. Like you're Pinewood, you have to hold these stages for these people it's an it's an international company so you can't really look to your local government to bail you out the uk is not going to bail you out so you're holding these stages they built these sets on the stages so no one else can use them so even if there was another local production that could take advantage of them that was getting government bailout money or support or whatever that's not going to happen so you have to charge the studio and that's in your contract if you're the studio you have to keep paying for it because whatever you paid to build those sets, you don't want them tore down until the movie is done because mm, yeah. that cost is a significant cost. Also, I mean, one of the things we don't talk about enough in this whole reopening plan, but I've been reading a lot about in all of the Facebook groups I'm in for reopening Hollywood is the tremendous drama of art department is that like, you know, you're reading all these plans about how set operates, but you're not reading nearly enough plans about like, well, you know, when you're going in to build a set, you're working 18 hour days and you're having 200 people going and they're all running around and it's crazy. And it's like, you know, building sets is a big elaborate construction project with a ton of people interacting with each other. And that is also something that needs to be navigated. So you're the studio and you're like, well, I can't normally, I don't want to trade it on sets until the movie's done. I really don't want to do it now. And then have to pay double to get them rebuilt. But because it's a big international production, Neither of, you know, nobody is really, I'm sure everybody's getting some sort of small bailouts from the government, but this isn't the kind of thing where it's like, you know, it's a relatively easy argument if you're a studio and you're shooting in Topeka and to go to the governor of Oklahoma and you're an American company and it's an American studio and it's all, you know, but like it gets really complicated. Like if I were the government of UK, I'd be like, fuck you, American studio. Yeah. I would also add that um, it's Jurassic Park colon dominion like the sets are huge you know it's definitely like it's the scale and size it's part of why it's of interest to us because we think about 
you know, these top shelf properties and projects and what they're doing. And they have, as Universal says, money is not a concern. Of course it is. But for them, it's at a different scale than for, you know, the rest of us in indie projects. So we want to see what what hoops do they have to jump through and what hurdles do they have to clear to get back into action. Um, and, and, you know, like, yeah, they're hemorrhaging cash every day that this is waiting. Um, and, and the size of everything is massive. It's, it's uh, the size of a T-Rex, you could say. Hey, you know, I want to I I bring this up because I've seen a couple of memes addressing it. And uh, I feel like I'm always bringing up the meme angle here. But it's really funny because so the original Jurassic Park, there was always this potential loophole when they started making sequels of like, it was such a spectacular disaster. How could they ever consider reopening? And here we are, <laughs> like in these, this, the irony of we are like, you know, how quickly an economy demands that you reopen and start redoing something that might be dangerous to do. We, we're actually living it. And uh, I also saw a really funny quote. Uh, we put it up on our Facebook, No Film School Facebook, and people really enjoyed it. It was, uh, you know, screen grabbing the story that the movie, they were going to start production again. And someone said, it's a shame there isn't a parable about the dangers of, of trying to reopen too quickly. Yeah, we really haven't hit on that enough. But like <laughs> it's deeply the Jurassic ironic. Park franchise <laughs> is precisely the franchise that we should be starting with. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I know productions, I know that everyone on the production has already started making specific memes. And I know, <laughs> you know, when you arrive, you know, in the in the production Slack channels, there are memes <laughs> about like, you know, the Velasa COVID stalking you. And I'm sure people are even going to do little edits of like, oh, it's somewhere on set. It's floating out there and, and you'll go to the production office and there will be custom memes printed all over the place. Yeah, um, I mean, I, we've used this quote before, too, but you were so worried about whether or not you could. You never stopped to think if you should, which is from the original Jurassic Park. I also have a question. Are they, do you, do we know if they're on, I mean, I don't know if these things are ever released, but you know, Pinewood Studios is famous for many things. One of the things they're most famous for is the Broccoli stage, uh, named after Ab Albert Broccoli, the producer of uh, the James Bond movies. It's more commonly called the 007 stage or the Bond stage, but I like thinking of it as the Broccoli stage and um, biggest soundstage in the world at some point in history. I'm, there's probably a bigger one now, but um you know, a sort of famously huge soundstage, the kind of sounds you, you'll read interviews with big filmmakers a lot. And they'll talk about like, oh, well, as soon as we started designing a set, we realized there's no choice. We have to go to the Bond stage. It's the only one that could house it. You, that comes up a lot in sort of these conversations. Um, and so I suspect since it's Jurassic World Dominion and they're in Pinewood, my guess is they're probably on the Broccoli stage. And the Broccoli stage has famously burned down twice, I think. Hmm. Um, I think it burned no, down in 84. And it burned, and I think, uh, I think like part of it burned down in nineteen, but in nineteen eighty four, it like burned to the ground. Ground. Um, so you know, there's a there's a there's a there's a rule of threes thing coming with the broccoli stage. Just just pointing uh -oh. it out there. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to bring up one last thing on this as it relates to the filmmaker and the people we talk to in our world. Anyone with symptoms, this is a quote from a universal executive that's in the deadline story about this that we, we shared. Anyone with symptoms will be isolated immediately before being sent home. Um, I wonder, when I think about something like that, if 
people, how people will be checked. I imagine there will be thermometers. Um, but I wonder how it'll affect your livelihood. Like, will you be paid for your work on the entire, like, I wonder how the unions are working this out. Right. And then I wonder how it'll work on the non-union shows. Like if you have a sim, if you, so say you report to day four and you have a fever and they send you home, you're obviously not going to be coming back. Are you not getting paid the rest of the way? Like, these are questions that I start to wonder, like, and then does, are people motivated to maybe try to hide symptoms or lie I mean, about I think exposures or everything I've read is that you're on for the, you're on for the job that, you know, you get hired, you're out. Well, I would, COVID, yeah, you're still getting paid. Yeah. I would think for Jurassic world or sorry, Jurassic world dominion. But what about at very, like, as I always think about like, this is the top, but what's going to happen at various levels in between, you know, people are going to want to start, we, people are shooting things. Um, and people are going to start trying to shoot things on all the margins, you know? And what happens if, if you're a smaller production and you're non-union? And, you know, I guess the answer is, yeah, if you have, if you have symptoms and you get sent home, you're not going to get paid the rest of the shoot. But are we going to start creating a situation where people are going to want to lie and hide and create danger in general? This is the scenario I'm worrying about. Well, I mean, I think we have to change the norm where the expectation is, is that if you test positive, you should still get paid out. And I think production should budget for that. I mean, I remember when I was steady came up uh, a long, 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 long time ago, I had a very bad stomach bug. I was like vomiting and vomiting and vomiting and I had to replace myself for the day. And obviously the other steady came up, got paid for doing the day's work and I didn't. So I just laid at home, not making any money. That was a stomach bug probably related to my obsession with tacos. Um, <laughs> it would have been way. really hard to fake it as a steady cam op if you were throwing up, but there are oh, things yeah. you you could fake that like you could go to work anyway and risk people. Look, we've all done it. And like as parents, we send, people send their kids when they're sick sometimes or they have minor things. The whole culture oh, yeah. is going to change about this stuff, right? Well, and that's the thing is it has to be a cultural change thing. And like what's so funny to me is that like, you know, my daycare in New York City uh, you have to be, and this is way before COVID, but like, you know, you have to be 24 hours yep. fever free, confirmed, all of these. And this is like, I remember a year ago, my daughter. And they would ask old. a note sometimes from your doctor. Oh, yeah. You yeah. would have to go in and get a doctor confirmation that she that she was better and stuff. And like, you know, I remember when I was a kid, like, you know, your parents just need you in school so they can go to work. So you're just going to school with like, you know, like. Mm -hmm whatever it is that you have limbs hoping, falling off exactly <laughs> um you know vomiting all over all of the other students and it's like well can you make another couple of classes and it's like you know, that's part of having parents who work so i think it is a moment for culture change i think if you're a producer yeah and you're budgeting a product production right now you should be prepared for part of your contingency to go to be okay this person gets sick i'm still paying for them man that's um, you know that is a reality and i and i think about it from multiple angles because that's a, such a strain on a producer on a tight budget to think about adding in a, a cushion that's like well we're gonna have to assume maybe we lose somebody because of uh you know symptoms and that's you know but that's part of the reality uh of what we'll be facing and I, yeah i would encourage that we should we should hope that we go the culture change route and it becomes the norm and not that we end up in a position where people are forced to take risks and lie and, and gets and show up sick and et cetera. Yeah. It's going to be tricky. Um, on sort of a similar front in terms of who's going to sit and who's not, uh, 
the next story we have this week is that the WGA uh, did not get invited to the big crazy union party. Uh, so, you know, obviously the big, the guide we're really working from here, a lot of little studios have put out guides of like how we're going to start production. I remember there's one very early from Lionsgate in May of like how Lionsgate movies are going to come back. But, you know, the real guide everybody was waiting on is the unions because the unions represent all of the people who actually have to do the physical work. And they represent all the people who, you know, the unions have a lot of expertise with safety. They do, they've always done a lot of safety training with the people who are out there on sets. And so the unions got together and SAG and Yahtzee and I mean, SAG and Local 600 and 728 and all, you know, major craft unions were like, here's how shoots are going to work. But weirdly, and I have to admit, this is just because I've worked more in movies than in TV. So I didn't even really catch it in the beginning. But the WGA was like, hey, guys, these these rules don't really include like how the writers are showing up on set. But in television, the writer is the king. And when you read the rules, they do feel a little movie centric. Because they're very, like, they talk about the director a lot. They talk about, like, director interacting with these people and stuff. There's not a ton of mention of the writer, which in movies, you know, the joke is the movie, the you know, there are many jokes about the powerlessness of writers in movies. I won't repeat all of them here. But, Go watch The Player if you want yeah. to live. <laughs> if you um, want a deep cut that relates to that concept. In television, it is the writer's meeting. The, writer's the writer king. is on set. Yes. And the writer is, and, you know, the WGA was like, hey, guys, there's stuff here that sort of treats the writer as a visitor on set. For people who may not have the context, we've covered this con- this topic before on No Film School a lot. A lot of people who listen are film people, maybe your TV people. But the writer, the head writer on a TV show is often called the showrunner or the executive producer. And we've covered the difference between that, like what what makes you a showrunner or an executive producer in a writer's room, a writer on a TV show. They really are, the one-to-one is more like the director on a movie. And so when we talk about a writer in that way, we're talking about the person who's really crafting the whole thing, who's the final, does the final pass on most episodes, in some cases writes every episode, uh, plots the seasons, pitches it, and ends up directing a lot of episodes like this is like the per this is the usually the vision behind the show in a lot of cases so it's a really big deal and strange thing to have have that person not be allowed to be on set and i don't think that they were intending to specifically ban the writer from set i just think that the the wga felt a little bit like hey guys we need to make sure that there is provisions for how this is this specific relationship is also going to work because frankly, there's more work in TV than there is in movies. And realistically, more TV is going to come back than movies. Like in the short term, networks are desperate for content to come back. Uh, I just saw, um, because I know people on the show manifest is going to be coming back, you know, manifest just got renewed. And so, you know, they're going to be trying to figure out that shoots this fall and, you know, there's going to be other things. And so like, how is it? And it really starts to beg the question of who is absolutely vital on set and who can be sort of digitally present. I mean, you know, this is something people, and we we really think of this as coming to the fore in the last 10 or 15 years with people like Wes Anderson, who famously the fantastic Mr. Fox direct, uh, was shot in London and he directed it from Paris. Um, and that was, you know, sort of a very, we think of as being sort of an early example of this technology really coming out where people are able to feel very present in a space without actually being in a space. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to throw in a callback. I've mentioned it before, but 
Steven Spielberg did quite a bit of the directing on the second, the first second Jurassic Park movie. Remote. And then even going back to the <laughs> even going back to the early eighties, uh, Francis Ford Coppola on One from the Heart got really obsessed with this idea of like this Winnib- uh, like a Airstream trailer with all of the tools that he could sort of sit in and see everything. And apparently, I mean, I wasn't on the set, I was four years old, but apparently one from the heart never left the trailer, was there in the trailer, had all the video feeds. And so like, you know, is this something where there could be a writer's trailer down the street where everything has the video feeds and stuff like that for giving you that remote sense you of know, presence? Uh, yeah, there's also like live TV is directed sports are directed by someone in a van and George Lucas apparently has like never been on the set of any movie he directed. I'm joking, but he really is like one of these guys who was known for being way far away in video village while they were shooting stuff and not communicating with people directly in front of the camera around it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of precedent for it for sure. And we've seen a lot of filmmakers. I I mean, we'll invite some of them onto our podcast and we'll have posts about it on the, but I've known a lot of filmmakers who've already directed, you know, ads or, or little branded content or various things without being on set. It's an emerging thing that's happening. We'll have to pay attention to how it works. Well, and we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to the tools that make it a realistic possibility for that to happen. That being said, we can talk as much as we want about the tools that do it. But then the real thing that we also have to pay attention to is the way in which dynamics play out in that case. And all of those examples we just gave were examples where people had sort of default power, right? Coppola, Spielberg, Lucas in charge of their productions at the heights of their career with tremendous studio backing. Unlikely that sitting in their trailer, if they have a first AD out on set, that first AD is someone they hired and work with all the time. The first AD is not going to try and steal the ship from them. Mm. But, you know, or, if the we're talking about a scene, or the camera op. Yeah. Well, or in, you know, in these productions we're talking about now, like if you're a writer and you're not allowed to be on set, but there is a director of the episode because obviously TV shows have directors of episodes and they massage performance and figure out blocking and, you know, they work closely with the writers traditionally on set. The writers and directors are interacting all the time and the director's, sort of defer to the writers who are the people who have to keep the show going year after year. Um, But there might be tension, but you know, I don't know if anybody has had this experience, but I've certainly had the experience of like working out tension, working out conflicts, working out, especially miscommunications is way different in the digital space than it is in the, I mean, I don't know if anybody else had this experience, but I had an experience where somebody um, because of a digital cutout in a zoom meeting, I think somebody thought I was stepping on their line they felt like I was interrupting them because the signal cut out and we had to sort of unpack it and it's someone I work with all the time and it was fine. But initially it was a tense moment because her signal had cut out. I didn't even know she was talking. I started talking and like, that's just a thing that happens in zooms. I'm sure a lot of people have conflicts in zooms based on that digital technology. uh, This is something that's going, it's, this is a really interesting topic and it's something that's going to be generational, I think, because, um, I am familiar with working on set in person. I'm familiar even working in a newsroom on a blog in person and even no film school. It's funny. We've, we've come up against this just today. We come up against it all the time, creating the virtual newsroom and, and work and, and environment is extremely challenging. You use, there's a lot of different tools, but things will get lost and communications happen on so many different channels that 
things get bumped, people lose clarity, they become frustrated. And just streamlining that process is almost its own task. And I don't, you know, <clears throat> working on a set as I've been a producer a lot, and, and a producer means so many different things. We have a post on No Film School about what is a producer and the many things it means. But some producers need to be on set and some producers you wish weren't on set. And the bigger the project, the more people like that exist and the more the question becomes, which ones do you, do you want to have there? Which ones do you not want to have there? Who's deciding which ones are allowed to be there? Uh, you know, the studio might want to have a couple people out there on location. Um, I've known exec creative execs who just are like sent out and have to like monitor an entire shoot, you know, and does that, is that something that's going to be discontinued or regulated differently because of safety and how does that affect the process? Maybe it's a good thing for the process. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, and also I'm just going to say this, like I I'm old enough that I still prefer the in-person thing. And my worry would be that, you know, one of the things I love is where all that, you know, I did a location job in the National Radio Quiet Zone. I talk about this all the time because I loved it so much because the National Radio Quiet Zone, you can't have cell phones because uh, it interrupts the antennas we use to listen for aliens. And everyone was just there. Like we were all just present. Like the most tuned out people got were reading the newspaper. Like everybody was just. How long like, ago hey. did, was that shoot? I haven't heard this story before. Oh, this was 2012. This was my feature, Angels Perch, and oh. um, and I highly recommend it. It's still the National Radio Quiet Zone to this day. They still don't have cell phones. There's one microwave in the whole 50 square mile area, and it's in a bank vault. Um, like if you bought a microwave, they would come and knock on your door and be like, "Hey, we can tell you have a microwave. You're not allowed to use that here." Hmm. Um, and there are these big antennas there that yeah. were actually built in the 50s to spy on the Russians, but we also use to look for uh, alien life. And it's wonderful to just sort of be present. Everyone's there. And, you know, it was, we were all so focused. It was great. Obviously, as soon as we all wrapped, we'd all go back to our homes where we had Wi-Fi and we'd be rolling emails from LA and doing calls and, the, you know, but like when we were actually on set, we were there. And my worry about this is there's going to be the illusion of presence, right? You're directing an episode of TV and the head writer is there digitally, but that head writer is on a laptop. And if there's anything we know about laptops, it's that there's a billion goddamn distractions. And so like- Or phones. You know, I mean, it's so, look, uh, you're preaching in the choir with me. This is, a, it's a real shame Michelle was out this week. Uh, we could have used you here, Michelle, because Michelle has worked so much with remote for so long. And she's, I think she would, she would really be providing- a voice because I'm also, you know, I'm analog too. And I, like, I, I really value the in-person interaction with work. I think it's extremely helpful for me to communicate to people. I'm, I'm, I'm not an extrovert, but I really value work being done in communication face-to-face. -face. I like putting things up on a board or showing people what I'm talking about or demonstrating. And I think it's valuable on set. And one of my favorite on-set experiences happened uh, before that, I think it was 2007, maybe, but we shot in Death Valley. And at the time, there was no signal. And we just could not every when we needed more film, we were also shooting on film. I had to call on a payphone back to LA to get somebody to send us more film stock to drive it up. But that was to me, a more present cool experience than and I'm not saying you can't do amazing work this way you can it's obvious you can but we some of us 
will need to find our way there. And I think some others of us are born into this and will understand it and the nuance of it faster. So we're going to be, again, I, there's a theme to this week and it's dinosaurs. We're going to have to find our way to be relevant and to do our best work in a remote world and with remote input on set. It's just the reality, right? But no matter how much we try, like I think everyone <laughs> at this point has been on a Zoom meeting where you've emailed with someone else on the Zoom meeting while the Zoom meeting happened. I can't be the only one where or I'm on like a 20 20- texted. Yeah. And like, I'm in this 20 person meeting and I see some of the other names there and I get an email from that person. I respond and we like have this email exchange. (laughs) Well, which never happens in an in-person production meeting. When there's 10 of you sitting around a table, you're never emailing, you know, separately online. You might write some notes down on a notepad to follow up with later, but there's this thing when it's digital. Once you have the laptop open, you know, because I usually, I, I'm a big fan of physical notepads. I always have a physical notepad so I can write stuff down because it's really easy for me to then see what I've done and what I've not done, which I have a hard time with digitally. But even with that physical notepad open, instead of writing like email Tony the Tiger, I'm just like, oh, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just write that email to Tony the Tiger real quick in the middle of this meeting. And no matter how good I am at that, I'm still checked out of the meeting for two seconds. Yeah, it's tough, man, because these Zooms, like there's the culture of it, as it as it pertains to everything, but certainly filmmaking, I keep thinking that there's these jokes out there of like the way Nolan intended us to watch movies, like people watching his movies on their phones or whatever or their eye watches. But I'm also thinking about we're going to enter this era of the way Nolan intended us to behave on set because I keep thinking he's going to be the guy who's like I'm directing on set. I'm sorry whatever it like there's going to be a lot of filmmakers who don't do that and who and for good reason now and there's going to be a lot of parts of this process that are removed and i just feel like he's going to be the guy who's like no way i'm showing up to set we're shooting these hours these people have to be there and we're not you know zooming in etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's going to become uh cost effective and safety effective if that's not a thing to say but i'm saying it like you know, for us to do, uh, for us to do more of it remote. And, um, I, I, it doesn't come naturally to me. So I imagine for a lot of people that is my, my, our age and older, that is the case. But, um, like you said, authority sometimes comes from just the name. So how do you create authority if you're a younger director and you can't be there and you have to communicate your ideas and specifics and there's a different person running the set perhaps these are all well, and it's questions. also you know when it's not where, where the hierarchy is not so clear like the writing example is the perfect one like yeah you know if you're not there but you're the showrunner but maybe it's your first show and so maybe one of the producers is allowed to be on set or one of the network execs is allowed to be on set and you're not like it gets into all of these complicated things um which is especially all related to the fact that I'm rewatching community right now where like there's a season of community where they removed the showrunner and then the showrunner came back and you're like, Oh my God, the showrunner. So, I mean, we all know this. It's so deep in our soul that like a showrunner's voice is so important, but um, you can really see it. And in that season where the showrunner was removed, it's like, it's, it's just a different show. Um, Shout out to, uh, we shout out to Chris McKenna. We had him as a guest on the podcast who was, uh, a writer and ultimately a co-show runner 
on community with Harmon. Oh, um, Chris McKenna. I had him as a guest that post is that, that podcast is up. You can listen to it. He talks a lot about writing. Now he writes, you know, screenplays like Spider-Man movies, but he did write a lot of TV. It would have been interesting to have talked to him about all of this. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to the podcast, everyone, but this news wasn't out yet. It would have been really interesting to know what he thinks about how it would impact the workflow. Okay, and now in a less smooth transition than my last transition, on to tech news. So there's two big pieces of tech news this week, one of which is not remote work related, and the other is remote work related. So let's start with the one that's not remote work related first. And this is some weird news. We don't tend to report on a ton of rumors at No Film School. We do occasionally if the rumor seems like relevant to decision making. Like, oh, you might actually want to wait to buy this camera because the rumors are starting to really heat up about its replacement or whatever. We're not going to report every rumor, but some of them are interesting. And this one is about the Canon EOS R5, which is a camera that is expected sometime soon, expected July 2020. And we've started to see some sort of interesting specs come out in a variety of leaks. And then the last leak that just came out with the new Adobe Premiere update. So, you know, in the Adobe Premiere Premiere update in their sort of um, technical files, they're going to list like what footage they support and things like that. And in the um, release notes for the new edition of Adobe Premiere, Adobe indicates that it's going to support raw footage from the Canon EOS R5, which is fascinating. It's kind of a, it's like a weird reveal. There was there was an angry email from Canon to Adobe <laughs> at some point in the last forty eight hours. I don't know. I, I don't know if it was bad enough that they got on a conference call, but somebody was like, "Really, guys? Really?" Maybe um, they got on a Zoom, and some of the people in the Zoom were sending emails during the Zoom. I, I guarantee you that <laughs> happened. So, a little bit of context about this: Canon, obviously, the DSLR market, the five D revolution. There's still websites named after five D, like. It's, it was a huge thing in 2009. They really invented the like $3,000 camera that looked good. That was like Canon's whole thing. And then they've done a lot with the cinema line, the C100, C200, C300, C500, C700. They've done all this stuff with that. There's all this cool stuff around. Like they do great stuff. People have been feeling a little bit like they've been slipping in the like $3,000 DSLR range. You know, the 5D Mark IV. It's a crowded Wasn't, space, right? And it's we a have very you know, our, as our space. listeners and readers know better than anybody probably. There's a, there's yes. a lot of options and they all fulfill different needs. And uh, Canon, you know, was one of the first out there with 1080p, but maybe wasn't as aggressive in moving towards 4K as some others. And then uh, Sony came out with this amazing camera that was full frame mirrorless. So it was full frame, but it was designed without a mirror. So you could have a shallower flange focal distance, which let you adapt it to PL mount lenses and do all sorts of cool stuff. That's obviously the Alpha line, the Alpha 7. There's rumors of an A7S three coming soon. The A7S is the cinema-focused one, and the A7S II was a huge hit five or six years ago. So Canon came out with a full-frame mirrorless, I guess, a couple years back. But filmmakers sort of felt a little, like, underwhelmed they were like everything you're releasing in this camera in 2018 sony had in 2015 so what you're canon come on so there's a lot of rumor spreading around the r5 as being canon's like oh we're gonna throw it down like it's gonna be 8k which in a camera that'll be under five thousand dollars is gonna be amazing it's gonna shoot raw which is the thing that like you basically the only cameras in this range that ever give you raw give you external raw you have to go to an external recorder like an atomos which like isn't a bad thing but you know it's still how you get raw and you're usually talking about something like prores raw 
it appears from this Adobe leak that this Canon is going to shoot internal RAW. You're not going to have to spend 800 bucks on an external Atomos recorder. To be clear, $800 for an external RAW recorder is a scorching good deal. Like five years ago, that would have been so much more. It's not, but like, you know, if you don't want an external recorder, if you want it all in the body, internal RAW recording. So it's just like another thing, right? You just, yeah. just like another thing hanging off your camera and maybe you're like keeping a low profile or yeah, you want the yeah, or you Or you want to rig it up for action work. You want to strap it to a helmet. Right. You want to put it on your handlebars and then you don't want an external RAW recorder, obviously. Um, the idea of internal RAW on a DSLR is not something that is like widely supported right now. I can't think of any others off the top of my head. I'm sure someone on Twitter will be like, you forgot about the, but off the top of my head in the DLR, DSLR space, in the space that like, or in the mir- full frame mirrorless space. The, yeah, the I was going to say gonna... DSLR slash full frame mirrorless, right? Yeah, full They're frame mirrorless. Like in the same, yeah. Yeah. In the zone the R5's going for, and with the volume Canon's going to sell for, raw, internal raw is sort of a huge thing. Now, uh, Canon has two flavors of raw. They have like full-fledged Canon raw, and then they have Canon raw light. This will be Canon raw light. There's not quite as much flexibility in Canon raw light as there is in full-fledged uh, Canon raw, but it's still going to be super flexible. It's still a similar implementation, I think, to what we see in the C200. So, um, which is a camera that's way more expensive than the R5 and has a smaller sensor. I think Canon knows they really need to come back in with something like a big swing. And I think they're doing everything they can to really come out of the gate with the R5 on a big swing. And frankly, maybe they coordinated this leak with Adobe. Maybe they're mm. excited about all the links. I mean, I've, I'm, I find myself thinking about ta- and talking about Canon a whole lot more. And especially as all the rumors heat up on the A7S III, it keeps Canon in the conversation. Because we're about to enter a, a phase where if, if an Alpha 7... S3 is really coming. If one's right around the corner, the rumor mill and the attention that's going to get is going to be massive. And we, um, it seems that that is the case as well, right? We don't know. I think it, it is incredibly know, likely. It seems that is the case. And I think like, I don't know if you mentioned this, but the also, there's a lot about what's this, you know, what's the final price going to be on the EOS R5? What's the release date going to be? And there's a lot of it's it's seeming like it's going to be pretty soon. So there could be something about timing this information to build up some of the hype. So and then the other bit of tech news is that Apple has done a mid-year refresh for the 16-inch MacBook Pro. And normally we don't cover mid-cycle refreshes, but this one's interesting enough that I think it was worth it to talk about it. And I also think it was particularly worth it to talk about it in terms of working from home workflows right now. Obviously, you can buy a $6,000 Mac Pro and put it in your home. But, you know, you live in New York, you live in LA, your apartment's not really not big enough for a desktop, and you might want the flexibility of going to set or working from home. And so, you know, the vast majority of filmmakers I know work off MacBook Pros. That is by far the bulk of the filmmaking community. And the general advice I'm always giving is get the 16-inch if you can, and the place to pay for an upgrade is the graphics card. Now, I just did a review of the 13-inch, and I was kind of shocked at how well it handled 4K footage, and the 13-inch is probably maybe becoming a realistic consideration for filmmakers, but you're still going to want to default to the 16-inch because it has a much more powerful graphics card. It actually has two graphics cards built into it, and, and you know applications like Resolve and Final Cut Pro can really use both graphics cards in a very sophisticated, aggressive way. And middle of the cycle, you know, usually what happens with Apple is once a year they upgrade their MacBook Pro or, you know, if it's the Mac Pro once every six years, like literally the 2013 MacBook Pro 
did not get a single upgrade from December 2013 when you could buy it until December 2019 when the new one came out. There were no graphics card bumps, no nothing. It just sat there on the website with no improvements. MacBook Pros get them every year. And uh, so, you know, in December, the 2019 came out. It was very impressive. It was had a brand new keyboard, really powerful. But it only had one graphics card upgrade, and it was only 100 bucks. And that was kind of interesting. And then I remembered back in 2018. This is all in your review. Yeah. And back in 2018, Apple had the same thing where there weren't a lot of graphics cards options. And then about three months later, they had a graphics card upgrade available. And so what's basically happening is, is AMD, Apple releases the upgrade the second AMD makes it available. So the same day Apple made this available for users in the MacBook Pro, it's the same day AMD also announced it to the public as a graphics card people could buy for other laptops. So the second the Silicon's available, it's showing up in Apple laptops, but it Like literally, this silicon you're getting in June, you could not have bought in December. AMD wasn't even making it yet. Now, it's interesting because obviously there's going to be a new laptop in this coming October to December cycle, a 2020 MacBook Pro. There always is. So the question sort of becomes like, why roll it out now? And the argument Apple makes is, well, if you're a user that wants this power now, we're going to make that option available to you right now. And it's a compelling argument, especially in the middle of coronavirus, because like if you're a filmmaker and you're working at home or you have a bunch more work from, you know. Does it make sense to wait? I guess you're you're laying out the person who doesn't make sense to wait for, right? They need they have a need right now and this is an upgrade that they can take advantage of. But do you think that the price will drop on this with the release of the new product? No, I think the upgrade price. So, you know, a MacBook Pro is a MacBook Pro in its price, and then you pay an upgrade price for a better graphics card. This one's very expensive. It's $700 over the base price. Um, I think in December, you'll probably be able to pay $700 to upgrade to the same graphics card, is my guess. That's what happened in 2019. The yeah. same, it was the same upgrade chip. So, you know, it's the 5600M, the AMD Radeon 5600M. I suspect that whatever December one rolls out, it'll be the same. And I also think part of the reason why it was really smart for Apple to do this right now is I think like we're all figuring out next year. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm in all of these meetings. I mean, academics we're talking about next year, but also TV networks, all sorts of people. Like we're in that phase of the crisis right now where we got through the like, oh my God, all right, everybody scramble and figure out and we're putting stuff in and everybody's starting to breathe for a minute and be like, all right, what is the actual next year start going to start to look like? We're at least a year from a, um, from any kind of vaccine. And so what are we, what are we going to do? And I think a lot of post people are looking around being like, okay, I'm going to yeah. reasonably assume a lot of post is at home for right. at least a year. So I got to upgrade my machines. And, and like get it and dig in for the long haul, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that is a consideration. And so I think it was actually kind of smart for them to be like, you know, we've got this now. Let's offer this option now because, you know, it's a $700 upgrade, but, you know, some of their tests on their website, I haven't been able to play with the new card yet. Some of the tests on the website are showing like three and a half times the render speed in DaVinci Resolve. So if you're looking at something where you're going to end up doing like, oh, I'm working on a feature and I'm going to put noise correction on the whole thing. That, that could take a three-hour render down to a one-hour render. And like that's a huge difference in your workflow, in your life, and how long you're spending waiting for the laptop to be free to do other things. And so, you know, those kind of things. And what's really interesting, it's the first time I've seen in a laptop HBM2 memory, high bandwidth memory. Um, and high bandwidth memory means that it can move larger bits of data in and out faster. 
And that becomes a really big deal if it's 4K and 8K. And so, you know, if you're if you're in a position where you're like, okay, I'm working from home a lot, I'm on the show, uh, the producers think about cutting 4K, do I want to go build a Mac Pro Tower or do I just want to get a really powerful laptop? Like it, it's probably worth considering whether or not like a, a, you might be, you could probably get away with a 4K show on this laptop with the bigger graphics card, which is something that like you certainly weren't considering it seems like it's worth considering then if you're in a position yeah. where you might have to do the work or be up for a job to do the work and you're at home and what are your capabilities at home if they can't get you? I mean, some people are being sent home in the, in the post-production space with, you know, the, the gear, the stuff they would need from pr the production itself. But some people are probably looking for opportunities with what they have at home. Probably a lot of people. Well, and also you, you got to have the room to put it at home like yeah if yeah. i wanted to bring a whole workstation home i don't know where i would put it in my apartment i mean we have a baby but like i literally couldn't that it also assumes that you get to work in the same place the whole time but if you're in a two worker family like my wife has a job i have a job we're regularly switching rooms we're regularly like okay you can be in this room for these four hours you can like there's nowhere where I'm going to be able to set up a full color grading station with like, you know, I have a color grading monitor. It lives in the closet. I bring it out when I needed to use it. But like, there's no, there's no building a permanent install when two people are both working from home in an apartment in New York city. Like it is a constant state of unpacking and packing gear for which a laptop is much better. Like I wouldn't want to drag a tower around. Um, so I personally am very glad they've rolled this out. I I'm currently literally deciding, do I drag my feet? do I keep surviving on the laptop I've got until December or do I just bite the bullet with the 2019 because the new graphics card is so good. Like I'm literally very tempted. So I think that their timing has been, I mean, it'll, it'll sort of depend upon what jobs start stacking up for fall, I guess. New York must be, I mean, I'm not in a huge space myself, but yeah, you guys, you New Yorkers, my heart goes out to you. It was not a city. It's not a city designed for you to be stuck in inside all the time. That's for sure. The whole argument is all the stuff that is outside. Yeah. All right, let's wrap it up. <laughs> let's bring it home with a little bit of deep cuts this week. I'm going to launch my deep cuts with a, a film. This is another film. I feel like I did. No, you did a deep cuts where my wife surprised me with the tickets when you did High and Low by Kurosawa. This oh, is yeah. another film where my wife surprised me with the tickets to a screening at Lincoln Center. It's by Charles Burnett. If you guys don't know Charles Burnett, great filmmaker, most famous for Killer of Sheep. But he made a 1994 crime drama called The Glass Shield about a couple of rookie police officers who uncover a conspiracy within the police force. Uh, there's uh, the arrest of a subject played by Ice Cube. This actually came out the year before Friday. So I think mm. in some ways when we think about Ice Cube, Ice Cube at this point, I think we can say has like a, you know, a, a pretty impressive body of work. I, I, I wasn't really going to talk about like that, but like I cross platform. Yeah. He's on all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I feel like the glass shield gets neglected a little bit because it's overshadowed by uh, Friday, but I've never uh, seen it. So this is, this is interesting to me. Go on. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is a, it is a movie about, I mean, look, as we talk about defunding the police and as we acknowledge that there are systems in place that makes the police have a tendency towards, not do you know like police rights yes. like yes. like we are literally watching police fail the simple like we are having peaceful protests saying please no more police brutality to which the police <laughs> response is police brutality brutality it is, it is it is insane um but you know this is 
we, we do have to remember that like, and you hear all these jokes about like the kind of people who apply to be police. I personally think it is a system that tends to not reward good behavior. But I te- my assumption, and maybe I'm naive, is that many people do join the police force with good intentions and find themselves corrupted or disappointed along the way. And the glass shield is about two people who do join the police force with good intentions, um, two rookie cops sort of learning about what the police force is actually like and the way in which the system attempts to get you to play in the system. It is a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. I was, when my wife got the tickets, I hadn't heard of it. We went, um, my wife has very good taste in movies. Uh, Sounds like it. Better than her taste in men. And, um, (laughs) and I, it is, it is, as we think about all of these things, as we process all of these things of like, what is the world we want to build? Like, what is yeah. on the other side of us? It's like, I found it really enjoyable. I have one and a mini one, actually. But um, but you really got me thinking because I've been thinking a lot about, about this issue we have. We brought it up before because we were talking about The Wire, that we sort of only have one, we, we really only have one kind of narrative we want to tell about law enforcement like we really it's there's there's one story we come back to a lot and we don't often tell the story that is also extremely common in real life which has to do with corruption and like fallen angels really and like and not the best version of it and the version of it that we're actually seeing an awful lot of right now and i think the fact that there is this disconnect in the narrative is part of why we're having trouble accepting this reality and we keep going to this bad apples thing like there's a few bad apples because we like to most of our stories are about police and law enforcement that's heroic so i think that it's hard for us to reconcile that and i'm interested in more stories and i'd like our community to reach out to us with more stories that show a complicated view of law enforcement and less of a you know less of the version that we get that's really just you know good guys catching bad guys which is great it has there's a place for it but and there's reality to it, too, of course. We were talking about Jurassic Park, and I was thinking about Steven Spielberg. And I think a great deep cut for Steven Spielberg was his first, or one of his first movies, Duel, if you can get a hold of it. I saw Duel for the first time in a theater at the New Beverly, where I saw a lot of the best things I've ever seen a long time ago. Um, it's just the story of a man who and, and road rage, and the monster that's tormenting him is a truck and it's a man in a car versus a truck on the road and it's it's great it's riveting and you can see everything that makes spielberg spielberg happening in that early movie it's his uh it it, it was kind of like his coming out i think he did an episode of columbo perhaps and i think this was a made for tv movie um and i think after he did duel he did sugarland express but it's, it, it really puts it all on display, all the genius of, of the monsters, the dinosaurs. Before there were Jawses and T-Rexes, there was this truck, and it's, it's a good one. And I want to do a little mini one because I think it's really applicable to our community. If you get HBO Max, which is now available as a new streaming platform, it has... Uh, it's got all of the Warner's library. It has a lot of the MGM and TCM libraries. So they have new Looney Tunes, but they also have a lot of the original Looney Tunes, which I recommend to anybody. 
they're great. And Chuck Jones is an amazing artist and director, visual storyteller. But there's one that I watched with my son who's old enough for most of them, but this one went way over his head. And it's the one with the frog. If you're not familiar with the one with the frog where he's the dancing, singing frog, it's called One Froggy Evening, I think. It's just so dark and complicated. (laughs) It's not a kid's cartoon, really. This man discovers a frog that can sing, but it doesn't sing for anybody but him. And I kept thinking as I was watching it, I was watching it through this lens of like, this really feels like part of what it is to be a creative spirit. You're trying to communicate this, this bizarre, crazy idea, but every time you put it on display, it like doesn't work. The audience doesn't see it or it doesn't land with them. Or, and I highly recommend it to people in the creative field because I, like, I feel like there's a real subtext there uh, that's powerful. And I'm curious if other people see it as well. But it's not for kids. It's too confusing for them. Those are my two. What was your other one? Do you have, if you have another one? I didn't have another one, but I just want to share a, a, a thing that I think everybody should learn because I didn't know about this. So Jamie Ford, who is a writer on Twitter, uh, not an, not a black writer, a white writer. I know we've been shouting out a lot of black writers to follow, like Michael Harriet, Wesley Lowry in the last couple of weeks. And I think you I think everybody needs to follow Michael Harriet. He's my favorite person on Twitter. But Jamie Ford, white writer, uh, tweeted out a really amazing story last week, which I was not aware of. And uh, I didn't know that until the 70s, most ambulance services were run by the police. And it was often like the punishment job where they were like, you fucked up or whatever. So they were like, all right, you got to drive the ambulance for a couple of weeks. It wasn't professionally trained EMTs. Wow. And, um, That's terrible. <laughs> and a lot of black neighborhoods felt poorly served by this. Not a surprise. And so black leaders in Pittsburgh's Hill District created the Freedom House Ambulance Service and created their own ambulance service that was so good it eventually started being asked to serve some white neighborhoods and funding was taken from the police force to fund this. So like when we talk about defunding the police, which like I'm not done having that conversation, like we are talking about what if the police didn't do all the things we're assigning them? And what if we took some of that money and trained specific people to be experts in that? And, you know, there are all these interesting stories when you start digging into the stuff about like, you know, people who died with asthma attacks because the cops obviously weren't trained to do it. And like, it's also unfair to the cop. Like, don't ask. I'm not trained on how to deal with an asthma attack. I don't want, you know, like that's not. So trainings people specifically for the job, building this thing that we now think of as EMTs, like EMTs are a thing now that get funding in various fucked up ways because America's healthcare is a nightmare. But that's what we're talking about when we're talking about defunding the police. We're saying there are things we want in our community and we would love to find ways to split that off from the police budget so people who are dedicated and specifically trained to do it well can do it. And it's a really amazing story. So Jamie Ford on Twitter and it is the Freedom House Ambulance Service. Check that story out. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think just to, to just to tag something onto that, it's uh, to put it in our in the in the context of our world. It's kind of like or our community. It's kind of like that. And there's a lot of great stuff that's been written by policemen. Like like I've read a couple things by ex cops about this. That's that's really important to understanding all the things they're asked to do. In a lot of ways, they're like social workers without the training. And I've seen that thrown around a lot. And I think that it, it's sort of like in the filmmaker sense, it would be like if on set we had, you know, camera people doing everything. We were like, you know what? A set is all about 
cameras and it's about camera department and we had camera people running sound and we had camera people doing art and we had camera people doing makeup because we were like movies are about cameras right cameras are the important thing and like and i know there's a lot of people in different departments who are going to hate me for saying that but that is kind of like the if as far as how departments look on set they're kind of like the elite one they get they feel seem special and everything else was suddenly like which is equally important and so many required skill sets, but it was like, but you know, we got all these, like it, the thing isn't like eliminate camera department, although there's a case to be made with eliminating what we know as to be the police, but eliminating that their role as the everything is the only thing that we prioritize and we put so much into because we definitely need other expertise represented on our set. And that metaphor just works for me because I think when you know what a set looks like, or you know what a, if, if, if we all understood like what a functioning city looks like, we might have a better idea of how these people are being asked to do jobs that they're not equipped to do. But we can certainly think about it in the context of set life. Like it would be crazy if we were asking, you know, ACs to be grips. Maybe that's less crazy than when we're asking them to do hair and makeup, but that's kind of what this is like. That's the way I think I've, I see it at least. Um, well, that's a beautiful analogy. And I want to take it even one step further because I really love it. And I'm like very like it, it like is so dead on because we all worked on that project earlier in our career where we're like, oh, my God, I can borrow this 35 camera and we can put like $800 in film and we'll go shoot something. And so like every single penny we have goes into film stock or yeah, we get our hands right. on Alexa or whatever. So like we put, you know, 80% of our budget in the capture format. And then if the acting is no good because we didn't hire good actors and if the sets are <laughs> ugly and if like if, 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 if all of the other departments weren't reflected, then, you know, none of those things are work that I'm proud of sharing. You know, I have those. I shot those. I made those films when I was 19. And, you know, they're not they're not on my Vimeo page right now. <laughs> um, we learn and we grow that actually, you know, a really balanced budget like. You know, uh, a question comes up all the time where people are like, what camera would you want to shoot everything on? And I'm like, well, you know, obviously I love the color reproduction of the Alexa, but oftentimes I'm in a situation where I'm like, okay, well, the Alexa is taking X of my budget. But if I bump down to the Vericam, which is also a beautiful camera and gives me beautiful images, could I use some of the other money to get another couple grip hands so we can move a little faster? Or I have this big night exterior. I need this other light that I'm not going to be able to. So like every mature adult artist has balanced all of these needs. And sometimes, you know, Crazy Rich Asens was on the Vericam. And I'm sure that that DP considered the Alexa, but it's still a beautiful movie. And I'm sure there were variables they were balancing there. And, and all we're saying is that like, everybody in every area of our life is always balancing budgets. We're like, oh, we have this vacation coming up. Maybe we won't order as much takeout for a while. Like that's just part of being a human being. And we would like to see the same applied to city budgets where it's like, oh, you know, maybe you, you shouldn't be allowed to spend more on policing than you do education. Like maybe they should be tied to each other where it's like, you know, they, they have to be equal. Yeah. Like, how or, wonderful or, would that be? Right. Or even just saying like, well, we've got problems with this, so let's solve it with this other thing. Like it's sort of like the argument of, well, if we shoot at higher resolution, it's better. Well, not necessarily. Like there's some ways I exactly. think the department has become this like, the, the more of it will help us be safer or better, but it's, it's, it's treating a symptom and not a disease. It's like if, if you're getting sick all the time and you just keep buying more Advil, 
eventually you're going to have to do something like drinking more water, getting more rest. Maybe you need an antibiotic, but like Advil treats one, like the late stage of whatever's going on with you. Like, and I think that that these analogies might help bring home, I think, or help some of us communicate this idea or about this problem, but certainly nobody likes those movies where, uh, all we focus on was one department. It just doesn't work. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been another week on the No Film School podcast. Uh, good luck making movies, everybody. And we will see you all next week. And Chris Pratt, if you're out there and you want to come in and talk about your <laughs> quarantine workout and how you're getting jacked again for uh, a July 6th start just date. three weeks. <laughs> uh, let us know. 